You are listening to True Psychiatry. I'm going to explain why I say psychiatry is changing and why I say psychiatry as we know is dying. And for this discussion, I'm going to use depression as the canvas to present the arguments. So if you think of depression and how we understand depression or how we understood depression during our training, you will see that, if you recall, that depression was presented to you as a biological disease. Uh, Many times you have heard of having a biochemical imbalance in your brain, maybe a deficit of a neurotransmitter, serotonin. Um, Before that, there was the another theory of depression that involved serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Um, And you probably frequently heard of studies showing differences in the brains of depressed patients, all seemingly in an effort to validate the idea that depression is a biological disease as opposed to a behavioral disease. And we can discuss more about that in another time. Um, But there's really no separation in that sense. But um, the matter of fact is that we never found anything reliable enough and replicated enough to confirm the hypothesis that depression is a biological disease. You see, uh, recently a meta-analysis was published by Moncrief and collaborators where she reviewed, Dr. Joanna Moncrief reviewed all the available evidence on the serotonin hypothesis of depression and nothing was found. Nothing really consistent was found and she pointed out all the methodological uh, issues with the the papers um, and all the limitations that really... Here's the thing. If you doubt what I'm saying, answer this. After $40 billion invested in the search for biological markers of our diagnosis, when was the last time you ordered a lab to confirm the diagnosis of depression? Now, Look at where we live and how we practice. Any small lab gets a huge boom when it comes to the market. Look at the Ginsai thing. Um, It's actually a metabolism test. It doesn't tell you what medications work. It really tells you what medications are metabolized too fast to be useful. But the misunderstanding spreads and everybody's ordering even though there's really no point in ordering a metabolism test for absolute majority for the absolute majority of cases until the SM3 until the advent of meds uh, all theories of depression were coming from psychology and for the most part s- the depression feeling down was in, in different names, it had different names before. You know, it was used to be called melancholia, and uh, uh, but I guess my point is, depression was understood as a reaction to life events, and it was time limited for the most part. You can take any writer all the way up to when medications became a thing, and he's going to present some version of the fact that depression was a result of your interaction with the environment or the history 
of that interaction or a combination of both. We have extinction for Skinner. We have lack of meaning for Jung. We have the melancholia uh, formulation of, of Freud. Um, and why did that change? Well, we came up with medications that could somehow have an impact. Drugs, right? That could have an impact on your behavior and in the amplitude of your feelings. Um, and, well... If the medications have an impact on how that person feels, then whatever the person is feeling is probably a result of a mechanism that the medication is fixing. However, that is not true. I feel very good when I drink some alcohol. A little bit of alcohol on a Friday night, I feel great. Does that mean there's a lack of alcohol in my brain? Someone that smokes marijuana feels good when he smokes marijuana. Does that mean there's a lack of cannabis on his brain? So that fallacy led to the research and all the hypotheses. The same happened to schizophrenia. You know, the dopaminergic, the dopaminergic hypothesis of schizophrenia. But we'll go back to that in the next episode about the same topic, showing how a lot of the things that we were taught about schizophrenia were stemming from this sort of a reverse engineering way of, of making assumption about problems. First, we have a drug that has a, an impact. And then we come up with the hypothesis about the problem that the medication had an impact on. But then what? how good is that impact? How good is the treatments we have nowadays? And I don't have to spend a lot of time arguing about this. All I have to say is look at your practice. Look at your patients that are on antidepressants. Look how frequently it is, how frequently it happens in your clinic that your patients come back saying, I was a little bit better in the beginning and I'm no longer better. And then you have to make a change. How frequently is that patients are taking three, four medications or patients that you have inherited taking five or six medications and still complaining of ongoing symptoms? How far do we have to go to realize that these therapists don't work? So let's think about it. Do we have any research to confirm that hypothesis, that medications don't work? Unfortunately, we do. So, uh, Irvin Kirsch, from, he's a psychologist and he's a researcher. And what he researches, for the most part, is um, um, placebo. He researches placebo. And so, what he did with his team, he took the studies presented to FDA to have antidepressants approved and he reviewed those studies and he reviewed a total of 232 studies because he wanted to know using HAMD-17, which was um, the depression scale used for most of the studies, he used to know, okay, we know there was a separation from antidepressants from placebo. When you do a randomized control trial for depression, everybody improves, right? Both arms improve. The placebo improves and the, the antidepressant improves. 
but the claim is that there's a small difference, right? And this difference, the size of this difference is what he wanted to research. So he took all the studies that had HAM, uh, HAM, D, uh, HAM D17 as, a, uh, as the main uh, tool uh, to assess the improvement in, the, in mood. And um, the other studies that used other um, uh, scales, they converted on a proportional matter to the HAM D17. And what he found was that the average difference, average difference between the placebo group and the uh, active treatment group for all antidepressants presented to the FDA during that window of time he examined, 232 studies, the difference in HAMD uh, scoring was less than two points. Less than two points. Now, there's a few things about it. HAMD17 goes from zero, which means you have no depression at all, to 54 or something like that. So two, let's assume two points. Two points will be the equivalent of someone rating four uh, for insomnia one day and then rating three for insomnia by the end of the treatment plus rating uh, four for low mood and three for low mood at the, in the beginning of the treatment and three for low mood at the end of the treatment. And the point is, is that even meaningful to justify all the side effects that antidepressants have? including physical dependence, considering that more than 50% of patients have moderate to severe withdrawal symptoms when they try to stop antidepressants, which the withdrawal symptoms of antidepressants usually are anxiety, restless, low mood, among other things, which leads people to think, oh, the treatment was doing something for me. I should go back to the treatment because we were misinformed about the prevalence of this uh, withdrawal symptoms, and we were taught to call it discontinuation syndrome. Plain withdrawal. Plain withdrawal. There's another study, also by Moncrief, where uh, they found, you see, back in the days, they would, they would compare antidepressants to active placebo in a, in a few trials. Then uh, what they would do, because that was done when tricyclics were going on, they would compare it to um, uh, atropine because they both dry your mouth. And um, what they found was nine randomized, nine studies. Uh, and those uh, studies, uh, antidepressants were superior to the active placebo in only two, two out of nine. In addition to that, that's what it takes for the FDA to approve a medication for a given treatment. If you present two positive randomized controlled trials comparing a medication with placebo, you're going to get approval for the function. It doesn't matter how many studies were negative. So, for example, vilazodone had something like seven studies and only two were positives. Um, Lamictal had five studies and two randomized control trials were positive and he failed another three. And that is a very frequent tale with our antidepressants. Additionally, so, so, so the conclusion to that is, you know, why there's a small difference between 
antidepressants and placebo, and that and yes, that small difference may be related to the fact that frequently the randomized control trials are double blinded, but the blinding is removed because of the side effects, which seems to be proved by the other review of studies where antidepressants are compared to active placebo. Because if you compare the patients taking an active placebo and having side effects, it thinks, oh, I must be taking the actual medication. And then you don't find a difference between those two. If we think of the nature of depression, if we think of the nature of behavior, not only depression, behavior in general, imagine yourself driving your car holding the wheel with your left hand. There's something happening in your brain that corresponds, that matches, that underlies that behavior. And then you switch to the right hand. There's something happening in your brain that matches that and is different. Does that mean that holding the wheel is caused or was started in the brain? or is a result of your interaction with your environment. The same is true for depression. If tomorrow in research they manage to find something that is associated with low mood, with sadness, so what? Depression is a syndrome, is, an, is a cluster of symptoms and at times of signs. We used to believe that the brain can do anything. The brain can do anything. We know that if you have bad trauma, trauma, if you are exposed to traumatic events, you may develop auditory hallucinations. We know that trauma, for example, is highly prevalent in schizophrenia, depression, anxiety syndromes. Why do we think it will be a biological disease for all this number of cases? Here's another thought. Here's another thought. Please follow me. Every organ fails. And some people are born with those organs already failing. Enzyme deficiencies, cardiac malformations, things like that. I want you to think of all the people you know. All the people you know. And think how many you know that were born with a kidney. Uh, with a liver uh, illness of some sort. some It's a very rare thing. Cardiac malformations, they are very rare compared to the totality of the population. So if we're going to think that depression is a biological disease that someone is born with, then we have to assume there's a very low prevalence of it, just like for every other uh, innate biological uh, problems or illnesses. So organs do fail. And they also fail along the way based on their interaction with the environment. So you can have cirrhosis based on your interaction with your environment, right? Because of drinking, for example, or hepatitis. You can have idiopathic things. You don't know what happened. It's possible. You can have, um, and yet they're all very low frequency all very low frequency. You can have, um, you can have uh, diabetes that is also acquired, you know, based on diet and lifestyle, but you can also have a version of it, which they're not that related, but that is a biological entity that 
is innate. You were born with it. And that all implies the functions of those organs. Well, the function of the brain is to play ball with reality. At times we are sad. At times we are happy. The hopes that those fluctuations are coming from some random changes in the brain was not confirmed. And, and it doesn't make a lot of sense either from a physiological or even logical perspective. So if that is the case, then we are really trying to hope to fix it with chemicals. And we know chemicals can help. We know, for example, cocaine is going to make you feel great for a while. We know that uh, alcohol is going to make you feel great for a short while too. But we don't claim that they're fixing anything that is missing in the brain because of that impact. More recently, a study showed that uh, I think Celexa impairs consequence-based learning. I'll repeat, Celexa seems to impair consequence-based learning. The author in the conclusion says it seems to account for the blunting effect that is frequently reported by patients. And blunting to consequences or blunting to reality, which is to a fair extent a lot of what a lot of the drugs we use with mind-altering properties do. They impact your responsiveness to reality. Alcohol makes a slower driver and maybe also makes you not so sensitive to things that could offend you. A young man trying to talk to a girl may have a sip of alcohol, so he becomes less controlled by the potential consequences and he does what he wants to do. So we have all these facts together. We have our empirical observations saying antidepressants are not doing a great job. And when they have an impact, a lot of people complain of blunting. So we are reducing the amplitude of the emotions. We take away the, the lower part, but we also take away the upper part from a suffering perspective is very useful. We have data, amazing data, showing that antidepressants don't do what they promise to do, which is being an anti-depression. They're not anti-depression drugs. They're anti-connection with reality drugs. And I had already an episode talking about... Um, the ethical implications of numbing somebody's emotion, uh, uh, somebody's uh, emotions uh, uh, that are a response to reality, and that has they have probably a very important role in that leading with reality, you know, that uh, dealing with reality. I mean, if they're blunting, if they have a blunting impact, which seems to be the case, then we have to ask ourselves, are we helping patients by blunting them? Because if what's causing low mood are life circumstances, shouldn't we be focused on addressing those life circumstances, which is a very difficult task. Addressing life circumstances takes all the help you can have. 
Shouldn't we be looking at them and saying, what is causing it? How can you address it? What could be different if you do this or that? Psychotherapy. But no, we're blunting them to unpleasant realities. We are blunting them to miserable existence. What if by doing so, we are actually keeping them put? What if by blunting you, we are actually making you not move? Just like someone who has um, a, a diabetic foot, doesn't have a feedback, doesn't move, doesn't step different every time, ends up developing an ulcer. Someone who's uh, uh, bedridden, cannot move, and because of the pressure, and he's not conscious, right? Picture a patient in the ICU, why it needs to be moved all the time. Because the feedback is not working. The pain is feeling, the skin is feeling pain because of the pressure. It's telling, hey, move. There's no movement. He's sedated, he's intubated, right? It's not, it's not present in that sense. Um, so you have to move because otherwise you're going to develop an ulcer, right? Opioid users have more joint problems which we should expect is not surprising, actually. What if we're just holding people back in their lives? This one life that we have, short as it is. What if we're just keeping them put sitting on a couch, watching TV and waiting for a disability check? Is there another way to go? Yes, there's another way to go. We all use medication, we all use drugs on a period basis, when the moment comes. We all use them. Most of society use them. No problem with it. There's another problem with chronic use of medications. Think about it. The medication is not fixing any problems. Medication is not fixing any problems in your brain, right? It's patching you through. However, the brain has mechanisms to compensate for the change that the medication is adding. So, for example, which is the, pretty much the, the mechanism of physiological dependence. And then if you have a medication that is um, self-reinforcing, then we would call that an addiction in general addiction terms, um, maybe in lay terms. Um, but what I'm trying to say is you take a medication that is not fixing anything, take alcohol, let's say, you like the way tequila makes you feel. So you decide to have that feeling every morning before going to work because it helps you go through the morning. Within two weeks, a shot is no longer sufficient. Within a month, two shots are no longer sufficient. We see that happen with benzodiazepines. Patients on cocaine go through that. Patients on chronic use of opioids go through that. We see that happen to antidepressants. You start the medication, the patient comes back and says, yeah, I'm kind of cool now. Blunting. And then the patient comes back the next month and said, the benefit is gone. And what do you do? What were we trained to do? Increase the dose. You have to maximize that drug before you go to another one. And so we go. But we don't focus on the changes that happened in the patient's lives that got them where they are. We don't, change in the, we don't focus on the changes that they could engage to actually generate positive feelings and positive emotions and to actually get out of this stagnation that the lives of a lot of mine and your patients 
are so remarkable for. This evidence is out there, is slowly spreading, and we can make a difference. We can look to these things and apply logic. Someone's going to say, well, how do you propose to use meds then? When the time comes, when a big change is about to happen, when the patient embraces the need to do something that he's afraid of, to break his inertia, to get off his comfort zone, that's the time for a drug if fear is paralyzing him. That's a short window. That's a point in time where drugs could be as helpful for someone coming off a depression in a meaningless life that needs to find a job, a partnership, a partner, uh, meaning, anything. That's a small window where drugs have a use. But if we prescribe too early, what can happen? Like we do every day. Look at your patients. Are their lives any better? We have some research uh, on quality of life, for example, and like, uh, but we don't have a lot because we don't look to those questions because most of our research field is financed by the guys that make the drugs. You can find this episode on True Psychiatry on YouTube or Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I am Dr. Nardi. It was a pleasure talking to you.